Thank you, Sean. Um, I'd like to invite Marilyn um, to come forward, Marilyn King to come forward. And uh, what I want to do is uh, talk a little bit about an, about an amazing ministry that we have here at Grace, which is our healing prayer ministry. And um, you've been part of our healing prayer ministry for quite, quite some time. And, but you recently came for healing prayer and had a pretty profound experience with the Lord. T first of all, tell us a little, little bit about the healing prayer ministry. And I hope I'm representing the healing prayer ministry um, in the right way this morning, that I don't misrepresent anyone. The people on the healing prayer ministry truly do believe, they don't just believe, they know at the core of who they are, that the gift of healing for the people of God is as available today as it ever was, as available as 2,000 years ago. Maybe the church has not passed it down in quite the way that Christ intended, but it is there, and we believe that. And we also believe that it is about bringing the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, one of the things you need to know about the healing prayer ministry is that we absolutely feel like it is a privilege to pray for whoever God puts in our path. We, it's not just a privilege, we are called to the ministry. It's obedience that brings us to pray, but the results are God's. We don't have anything to do with the results. We're just asked to pray. And in that process, all healing is to God's glory. Uh, we pray for physical, mental, spiritual healing, anything that a seeker might bring to us. We will pray into it. Um, we pray individually when we're given an assignment beforehand, and then we meet and we pray collectively before we even meet the person being prayed for. We pray for them ahead of time. This is a compassionate, understanding, uh, respectful, gentle process. There is nothing strange or weird or kooky about it. <laughs> It is a very gentle process. Now, you, uh, you came yourself for healing prayer and um, had, have quite a story with that. I do. I have, I have a history. <laughs> 25 years ago, I was introduced to healing prayer by two ministers who had had personal experience. Uh, over 11 years ago, I was diagnosed with stage one, but a, an aggressive form of breast cancer, and I was a recipient of healing prayer. And I did beautifully. I, I did so well. 18 months ago, just almost seems like out of the blue, I began to lose use of my left arm. I was diagnosed with stage four reoccurring cancer. Stage four. Stage four. There is not a stage past four. Um, no one will ever talk about cure. No one will ever talk about remission. They talk about what you can, what can be done for you. Uh, stage four, I had a tumor the size of a golf ball. I had bone involvement, and I had multiple lymph node involvement. I was told I needed a good oncologist immediately, and all of this happened in a week. Uh, the prayer team was here on a Sunday evening praying for other people, and at the end, we were all together, and I just said, I have to tell you what my situation is, and I want to give God first shot at this cancer before I ever start chemo. 
I received overwhelming prayer. The, the prayer team was great. I've prayed with these people for a long time, <laughs> and it was overwhelming. I have things that were prayed over me that were quite prophetic, and I can't go into everything. I'm going to tell you two or three things that may take your breath away, and they were pretty important to me. One of the men praying over me in the middle said, the doctor said stage four cancer, and the Lord has said no cancer. One of the women from a friend of um, Victoria's from Nigeria uh, was with our team that night, and she's, she was praying over me, and she said, you're going to recover, and you will have a testimony. <laughs> and then I was given the scripture from Second uh, Chronicles 20, where Jehoshaphat was up against another army that Judah would definitely have been defeated. There was no way they could come up against it. And he was given the word from the Lord that... The battle was the Lord's, and he was to gather the people and pray and worship. And God literally won the battle. <laughs> it was not Jehoshaphat. So that is where my healing prayer just recently um, started out. <laughs> Do you want to know the results? <laughs> Please. I think everybody wants to know the results. Okay. <laughs> We're on the edge of our seat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just a few days after that, I did start chemo. And um, I had only done three treatments, and my doctor wanted to do new scans to see if it was at all helping, because he was prepared to move on to something more experimental. <laughs> uh, I walked into the office, and he looked at me and said, your scans look good. And I said, what does that mean? And he goes, <laughs> let's look at them. And uh, my husband was with me. He put the old scans up on one side and the new scans up on the other side. Cancer light kind of lights up with bright white lights on these scans. And uh, you could see my, my body looked like a small Christmas tree, <laughs> the, the previous scans, the, the first scans. And then he started to scroll through my body on the new scans. And the screen was blank. It was black. There were no white lights. And my husband, David, said, where is it? And the doctor said, he said, it's gone. He said, in baseball, we would call this a home run. But I think in God's economy, we would call <laughs> it a miracle. A miracle, yeah. <laughs> a miracle. I went yeah. on uh, with some other treatment. I'm still on monoclonal antibodies, but that is to break up communication mm -hmm. for the aggressive side. Mm -hmm. I have been so well. And if you think that this is kind of an extraordinary story, it is. But there's way more to it. I've not been sick. Uh, the drugs I have been on can cause heart damage. My heart has not changed. My blood levels have not changed. I've not had problems with low white or red counts. I've experienced that in my life, and so I know what that's like. And not to have that through chemo is great. No infections. But there's something really more incredible than that. I always look at the New Testament and think that Paul has lived with one foot on earth and one foot in heaven, the way he talks. And he talks about a joy that you can live with, with, with in any circumstance of life. And we kind of go, yeah, but, call, but Paul was so different. And I can tell you that I live in complete joy. I live with no fear. And I live with the peace that passes all understanding. And I only have one thing to say about that is praise to the Lord from mm -hmm. whom all blessings flow. Amen, amen, amen. I want to ask you, if, if somebody says, I need healing prayer at Grace Community Church, what do they do? Uh, it's very simple. Call the church office. Ask to be put in contact with Cindy McElvain. 
she immediately contacts the prayer coordinator and they start praying and putting together a team for you and finding a time where you can meet with a team. Uh, a lot of times on Tuesdays and Thursday nights, there are teams available, but that doesn't always work for everybody. So we try really hard to find as quickly as possible a team for you. What's really amazing is that we have, we have now been doing this as a discipline uh, for probably two and a half, three years. Three years, yeah. Three years. Mm -hmm. And as time has gone on, the numbers of stories of dramatic answers to prayer are really quite amazing. We've had some incredible really quite amazing stories. Um, yours is amazing. Yeah. And I think the thing the net impact is that it's given us on the prayer team far more boldness to pray. And and there's joy in in the in the the place, that space of prayer, because what we see is people taking their fears over their illness their, their anxiety over their spouse's illness, bringing that into fellowship in the body of Christ. And we see the fear sort of melt away. And in its place is a God-centered confidence that God is big and we can trust him. And, and, that's, and that's an amazing thing. Yes, this prayer is meant for the total encouragement of people. Yep. There is no condemnation in Christ. Yep. This is to build the person up yep. and to help them heal whatever the wound is and moved into their God-intended life. Yeah. Marilyn, thank you. Welcome. <laughs> well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 1 this morning. We're continuing in our series called Kingdom, Kingdom Culture. And uh, this is our, our fourth and final week in the series. And all through the series, the main thing I've wanted to get across is this idea that God's kingdom is right here, right now. Yes, it's coming. It's going to be amazing. Jesus will return. He will set up his kingdom. But there is a present expression of the kingdom, and that present expression of the kingdom is right here and right now. And we as followers of Jesus have a choice. We can, we can choose to live conscious of his kingdom presence, or we can live as if it's not real, live as if it's not applicable to us. So in this series, I've wanted to give you some, some snapshots of God's kingdom presence. Uh, first week we talked about God's kingdom culture as being a, a culture of love. Then we talked about his kingdom culture being a culture of honor. Last week we talked about his kingdom culture being a culture in which God loves to show up in the ordinary. And this morning I want to talk about God's kingdom culture as being a culture that is uh, steeped in hospitality. Uh, God's kingdom culture is released in times of hospitality. So let me start off with, uh, with a, uh, a story about my, my growing up years. My mother was exceptionally gifted in hospitality. She was really good at it. As a young teenager, I can remember going into the kitchen attracted by these tantalizing aromas of amazing smells. And my mom would be, would be cooking. Maybe she was cooking a Christmas dinner. Maybe she was cooking for uh, a cooking club that she and my dad had for a while. My mom loved to be an instrument of hospitality to people that she was close to. And whenever I came into the kitchen, I was always invited to help. I would always be invited to take a spoon and sip the sauce that she was making. 
And I, I love this as a kid. It's one of the reasons why I started loving cooking was because of the example of my mom and, and my dad as well. But um, when the guests came to the party, my memories are that I would sit at the top of the stairs and I would listen to what was going on downstairs. I knew a lot of the adults downstairs. A lot of them were parents of my friends. And from time to time, my mom would invite me downstairs to meet one of the adults. Maybe it was the father of a kid in my class. Maybe it was the father of a new kid on the baseball team. Whatever it was, my mom would, would invite me down. I would meet this person. Then I would go back up and do my, do my thing upstairs. I had a strong category for hospitality growing up. And that's why my second trip to Cuba was so interesting to me. Because here's the connection. Uh, we had 10 of us going to Grace that year. And we had worked in the village of Magarabamba in central Cuba. Now, the size of that city uh, is not consistent with its actual size. It looks like that's the biggest city in the world. It's not. But we were working in this, this uh, village, and we got to the home of the pastor, and this is what his little porch looked like. And this was not the occasion, but on this particular day, we're sitting there, and this breeze blows through the porch. And one of the members of our team was, who was a member here at Grace Community Church, she said, did, did you guys just feel that? Did, did you just feel that? Did you sense that? Everybody stopped talking. And then the breeze came again. And she said it again. Did, did you guys just, just feel that? And there was this sense that everybody on this team had of the peace of the Lord blanketing this place right here, this house, this area, this little compound in this no-name village, this little village in central, in central Cuba. And here's what I felt at that moment. I felt the same sense of hospitality that I used to feel as a kid in my home. It was like a childhood memory of hospitality was rekindled in that place, in that place. I think everybody sensed that the presence of the Spirit was very powerful in that moment at that place. It was almost as if the Holy Spirit was saying, hey guys, I'm here and I intend to do something big within this village of Magarabamba. Well, in the years since that happened, we've uh, started a school called the Simiente Misionera, and that school now graduates about 17 church planters a year. And from this little village, a movement has come that has had significant impact on central Cuba. And it happened in a little shack of a house with a little thatched overhang on a fall day in Cuba. Now, my, my conviction is, is that God loves to use hospitality as an opportunity to release his kingdom. When you de de determine, I am going to be hospitable for Christ's sake, it releases something where God can work and do something powerful. We're going to see this in the story of Hannah 
and uh, her coming into the temple. And really the storyline is this. God leads a grumpy priest, and Eli was truly a grumpy priest, to pronounce blessing on a woman in pain. So let me, let me tell you the story, and then we'll, we'll zero in on its significance. The story begins at 1100 B.C., and the village of, tiny village of Shiloh was in the hill country of Samaria, about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And for years, the tabernacle had been pitched right in the center of the village, and the people of, of Israel would come for the yearly festivals at the tabernacle. There's a picture of the restored tabernacle on the screens. And God specifically says, I want you to come to this place, Exodus 25, verse 9, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Do you hear the hint of hospitality there? God is saying in that verse, I am an, an, a hospitable God. I want to have fellowship with my people. And so here in this tabernacle, people were invited to come on the basis of sacrifice to have fellowship with God. As you look at that tabernacle, one of the things you realize, it, 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 it was literally a pathway into the presence of God. God's Shekinah glory hovered over the Ark of the Covenant. There is a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. And the top of that Ark was made of pure gold. And the angels were bowing toward the invisible presence of God. But that invisible presence of God was, was coming down almost like a, a, like a funnel cloud right on top of the Ark of the Covenant. I will tell you that when this was first constructed, it was magnificently beautiful and colorful and filled with, with light. So that as you came into the camp, you thought, tabernacle, right there. I'm drawn to it. I'm drawn toward the presence of God. Now, I will tell you that I, I got a sense for this years ago, about four years ago, when Sydney and I were in Paris. Because when you get off the train at Versailles and you look down at Versailles Castle, you, you see this, this amazing sight. And it, you're drawn into the magnificence of Versailles. Now, I will tell you that on, on a supernatural level, when you got into the camp of Israel and you looked at the tabernacle, what you saw was color in the midst of gray or brown, and you felt the supernatural sense that God was there. He was present in that tabernacle through the Shekinah glory and the pillar of fire that would take place at night. Well, God's tabernacle got corrupted by two bad men, the sons of Eli, 1 Samuel 2.12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. These guys were bad. One translation says they were scoundrels. Another calls them wicked. Um, another says, the, 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 literally it says in the Hebrew, they were hard-hearted, meaning they were good for nothing. And here's what they did that was so bad. They stole the food of the sacrifice. So as the worshipers were bringing their meat into the tabernacle to be sacrificed, Hophni and Phinehas would come in with their big forks and they would plunge their forks into the pot and bring up the meat and said, that's for us. And if anybody objected, they were treated with tremendous hostility. And as a result, Hophni and Phinehas became obese. 
this was in a, a, a season of world history where nobody was overweight. And these guys were the rare exception because they were gorging on the meat of the sacrifice. Not only that, but they mistreated the women who were serving. There was these, these wonderful young women who wanted to love God with their whole heart. And so they would go and they would volunteer at the tabernacle. And they were a wonderful source of hospitality so that when people would come in, they were warmly welcomed by the women who served at the tabernacle. Hophni and Phinehas said, we're going to take you by force and we're going to use you for our own pleasure. I hope you see the problem. The problem was God constructed this tabernacle as a beautiful place of hospitality. And Hophni and Phinehas were taking this opportunity and turning it into something dark and painful and difficult. So, 1 Samuel chapter 1, a woman comes in in great pain. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah, Hannah had none. Every year, Eli and his family would come to the tabernacle uh, with his two wives and children. They were traveling about 15 miles from their home to the tabernacle. One day journey uh, might be a little bit like, like journeying from Bartlesville to Houston by car. Big trip if you're going by car. Big trip to go from where they were living to Shiloh to the tabernacle, especially when you have kids in tow. And so... Um, I want you to imagine for a second that uh, this family comes to Shiloh, they pitch their tent, they get everything organized, and if you were watching this family, what would you have seen? Painful dysfunction. Painful dysfunction. You would have seen one wife who had a brood of kids, and she was happy in playing with these kids, and another wife who was shunned by the wife who had kids, and depressed and discouraged. And, and very, very unhappy. Hannah has three kinds of pain. Uh, the first kind of pain Hannah has is she has an identity problem. Because back in the ancient world, if you, if you did not have children, um, you really didn't did not have much of an identity. They lived a survival lifestyle. And to have the ability to survive, you had to have children. Children were your workers. Children were your 401k when you wanted to retire. Children were your source of identity, and Hannah has no children. She has no social identity within uh, the family of her clan. Hannah also has a relationship problem. Uh, Elkanah's other wife, Penina, apparently has lots of kids. She's around it with all these adoring little children. It'd be one thing if Penina was very humble about it, if she was humble and respectful and kind to Hannah, but she wasn't. She intentionally acted as her rival, trying to provoke her into jealousy as much as she could. She uses sarcasm and put-downs and cynicism to express her utter contempt for Hannah. This was not a happy family, and Hannah is getting so heartbroken that she can't even eat. Hannah also has a marital problem. Um, I'm sure Elkanah was a great guy. I mean, he seems like a good worshiper. He seems like he's a, a faithful guy in a, a lot of ways, but he's not the most sensitive husband in the world. 
And I say that because um, he's downplaying Hannah's emotions. What he says uh, is, uh, you know, aren't I worth more to you than ten sons? And you're thinking, uh, <laughs> category mistake. Like, I want to be a mom. And as a husband, you may be a great husband, but you are not worth more to me than ten sons. He's managing her emotions, saying, you know, calm down, quit crying, don't be depressed. Come on, I'm worth more to you than ten sons, right? Well, that's, that's, not, a, that's not the proper thing to say. I, I think about what would happen in our house if, if we lost our beloved dog, Sadie. She died. And if, uh, if we lost her, and I said, sweetheart, stop crying. Aren't I worth more to you than ten dogs? I'm just saying, that would not go over really well. That would, that would not be a very uh, good thing for me to say. So what does Hannah do with her pain? She runs toward God. Shortly after they get things situated in their, in their campsite, she goes to the tabernacle. She enters the tabernacle. She finds a quiet place in the tabernacle to be able to pour her heart out to God. And she begins weeping bitterly and praying. But guess what? Eli is profoundly unhospitable. When she moves into that tabernacle, where are the greeters? Where are the young women who warmly would greet somebody else in pain? Not there. Where's Eli? Why isn't he warmly greeting her? She goes right past Eli, the high priest. He can't be bothered to say anything nice to her. So there she is. She's pouring out her pain. And old Eli is watching from his seat, watching her as she's in prayer, watching her with a very contemptuous attitude, watching her and getting angrier and angrier as time is going on. He's being hypercritical and hyperjudgmental. He thinks she's drunk. And so he walks over to her, assuming the worst, and he approaches her very, very harshly and says, how dare you come in here drunk? How dare you do that? Wow, real hospitable place that tabernacle is, isn't it? Real sensitive to people in pain. And Hannah's response is beautiful. Hannah says, oh, my Lord, no, I'm a, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Please don't, don't regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. I have to tell you, Eli models something that is sadly very common in places of worship. And that is people will make silent judgments about other people. Assuming. The worst, assuming the worst. It happens in Christian circles all the time. Somebody's in pain. Uh, people might assume something about their pain and they're judgmental. And the person who comes in seeking the presence of God says, well, if God's people don't care about me, then maybe God doesn't care about me. And maybe I just need to find a solution outside of the body of Christ. Well, at this point in the story, God breaks through in a, in a wonderfully supernatural way. God's, God's kingdom hospitality breaks in. And Eli is persuaded 
by what Hannah says. Now, I have to tell you, if you, if you read the, the chapter in its context, what you realize is that this happens so quickly that you realize this had to have been God supernaturally working through, through Eli. And so what does Eli say? Eli says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made of him. Now realize, Eli is speaking this as the high priest of Israel. He's using the authority of his position to speak into Hannah's life, speaking God's will and God's truth and God's grace and God's blessing into her life. Go in peace. Go in peace. Go in peace. When he said that, the authority of his position as the high priest of Israel made a difference in Hannah's life. Go in peace. And I can imagine the peace of God washing over Hannah in that moment. Go in peace. And Hannah says this, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the, the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She just had a supernatural encounter with God that was mediated through a man who had the authority to give it, the high priest of Israel. But Hannah does not stop there. Because look, if, you, if you've been promised a child, you got to do something to get that child. And so um, Hannah returns home exuberant. She initiates a refreshed physical relationship with her husband. She moves toward Alcana in joyful anticipation for what God is going to do knowing that God is going to give her the desires of her heart. But her joy is tempered with a pretty hard reality. Because this is what she said to God. Lord, if, if, you, if you give me a, a son, I'm going to dedicate him back to you. And he will, he will be yours. And that meant that if she got a son, she was going to take that son back to the tabernacle. And when she got back to the tabernacle, she was going to give her son, over to the Lord in that tabernacle. And he was going to be raised up by the Lord through Eli, the high priest. Ooh, is that a dangerous thing to do? Yep. Unless, unless you're convinced that the God of the universe is going to do what he promises to do. So fast forward about four or five years. Little Samuel has just been weaned. Little Samuel has taken 15 miles back to Shiloh. Little Samuel is presented to God, presented to Eli the priest, and there he will reside. And Hannah then composes a song. And Hannah's song is, is an amazing song. Hannah's song is a song that reflects incredible depth in her spiritual life. But it's not just a song for then. Because you remember that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is going to use Hannah's song as an inspiration for her song when she conceives and then later gives birth to Jesus. Hannah's song becomes Mary's song, and Mary's son becomes the king. I just want you to see that a kingdom moment took place when Eli decided to give blessing to a woman in pain. Now just think about that for a second. 
Eli had no idea that what he was doing in that moment would influence world history the way that it did. Had no idea. He pronounces blessing to a woman in pain, and God uses that place of hospitality to birth a kingdom movement that would affect Mary, that would affect Jesus, and that would affect you today. And it started with a bit of hospitality from a grumpy priest to a woman in pain. So, what's the main idea of the story? When you extend God-centered hospitality, you create a space around you where you can advance God's kingdom. You know, hospitality is like a culture that you create around you. If, if I come into a room and I am, I am like this and I've got earbuds in my, my ears and I'm not making any contact with anybody, I'm giving off a culture. Don't bug me. Don't bug me. So um, that's why sometimes, you know, when I'm out and about in Bartlesville, a lot of times I'm, I'm reading by listening to an, a, an, an audible book. And whenever I see somebody down the hall at Food Pyramid or w Walmart or Lowe's that I know, I take the earbuds out, put them around my neck, just so that I'm available to be hospitable to somebody that I see. Um, hospitality is a culture that you create around yourself and when you create that culture as a follower of Jesus, God can use the space around you to do the kingdom work that he wants to do. So let me pause one more time and remind you about God's kingdom. Okay, just I know that you've been thinking about this. God's kingdom is his all-encompassing rule. It's his all-encompassing rule. It's his all-inclusive reign. It's over all peoples, all places, all times. It's his all-encompassing rule and reign. His presence is different than his omnipresence. God's omnipresence says that the entirety of God is equally present on Saturn as it is in San Antonio. It's equally present on Mars as it is in Madrid, Spain. God's omnipresence says that all of God is, is there at every point in space contemporaneously. When we talk about God's kingdom presence, we're talking about something different. God's kingdom presence is his manifest presence. It is his specific presence. His specific presence in this place. His specific presence in your body because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And God invites us to be aware of his manifest presence, his kingdom presence in the moment. Now, if you were with me back in 2003 in that, that little place in Magarabamba, Cuba, could we have proven that the Holy Spirit, like a gentle wind, was blowing through that place? Could we have proven it beyond a shadow of a doubt? Of course not. Of course not. It was something that we took by faith. All of us sensed it. All of us sensed that the Spirit was there, all of us sensed the Spirit was calling us into something. We all sensed that. And the years since then, God has done an incredible work really fanning out from that house where we have, I think, Ed, over 200 pastors now who are working in and around Cuba. Ed Schmidt has been a vital part of that movement. I mean, God did an incredible thing. Could, could, could we prove beyond a shadow of doubt the Holy Spirit was there? No, we can't do that. Something we take by faith, sensing what God has done 
my faith. God's kingdom presence is being aware of his specific manifest presence in the moment. And as, as I've said before, uh, God's kingdom presence is like the air that envelops us. It's always there. Are we sensitive to it? It's like water that surrounds fish. It's always there. It's like the light that illumines us. This past month when I was in Cuba, we were working in an area called Vinales. And Vinales has a number of caves associated with it. Well, I was with a group that wanted to do a little caving. They were all dressed for it. I was not. So when we got to the cave, we hiked to the cave. They all went in. I guarded their stuff so that it was available for them when they got out. They got out of the cave. They were wet and dirty, and they had a lot of fun. Um, but they told me that when they got down to the bottom of the cave, they turned the light out, all the lights off. I mean, there were no electric lights in the cave. They turned their flashlights off. And the darkness was so profoundly disorienting that it was hard even, even to know if you were standing on level ground. And then the light comes back on. And, and the light then all of a sudden illumines you and gives you a sense of who you are and where you are. That's God's kingdom presence. It's like, it's like the light that surrounds us, giving us an understanding of our identity. Now, here's the cool part. When you're part of a kingdom, you take on the culture of the king. Now, in a funny way, this happens in England. Since our daughter is now British, we're, we are interested in all things British. But, you know, here's, here are two pubs, the king's arms and the queen's arms. Now, you go throughout England, you see the king's arms, the king's head, the queen's arms, the queen's head, the Queen Victoria pub, the Prince Albert pub, and on and on and on it goes. It's like we want to, like, it's like a pop culture thing. You know, we, we want to enjoy the culture of the king. We're going to raise a glass to the culture of the king. That, that, that's, that's sort of the idea in a pop culture sense. Well, I mean, in a spiritual sense, if you are transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, you bear his culture. And the question is, will you allow yourself to bring the culture of the king into the space around you through your hospitality? Will you allow yourself to do that? Here's the amazing thing about kingdom presence. You get invited into the circle of God's love. This past week I was reading about the quality of God's love. Do you realize that when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, God, will you please take this cup from me? Please? And yet, and yet, I don't want my will to be done, but your will to be done. Do you hear the vulnerability in that statement? You hear the vulnerability there? Can, can you imagine God the Father saying, Jesus, stop praying like this? Don't you know that you're, just, you're the Son of God? <laughs> I mean, you can't pray like this. Come on, I got I got work for you to do. There, there's, there's none of that sense within the, within the Trinity. There is vulnerability to the point where Jesus in his humanity can express his vulnerability to the Father. And the Father will hear. Or you hear on the cross, Jesus saying, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Jesus willing to be vulnerable 
and his expressions of prayer toward the Father. That's the nature of the love of the triune God, and you've been invited into that circle. And he invites you to manifest his kingdom, his kingdom presence. So what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that the way that you manifest kingdom culture around you is to be conscious of God's kingdom presence. Now, when you do that, notice what happens. Hebrews 13, verse 2, Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I've talked to several people in, at Grace Community Church in the last two months who've told me they encountered something so dramatic they thought, I, I kind of wonder if that was an angel. I kind of wonder about that. You know, when you're living in the kingdom presence of God, God begins to do supernatural things around you. That's at least part of the point of that passage. The other thing that we've got to do, though, is we've got to confront ourselves. Remember Eli? Eli had to, in a way, confront himself. The text doesn't say that he did this. But one of the things I appreciate about Eli, for all of his faults, he was willing to be confronted. He was willing to switch gears when he knew what was really going on with Hannah. And years later, when Samuel has a, has a vision from God, Eli is willing to be confronted by Samuel and it not destroy their relationship. If you want to live out kingdom hospitality, it's important that you allow yourself to be confronted. And one of the things we see in our culture is a natural predisposition to resist hospitality. Here's an example. Uh, this uh, is by um, a, an, an author named Tiffany Zong, who has founded a um, service to figure out what do millennials think. And she says this, doorbells are just so sudden, just so terrifying, says Tiffany Zong, 20, the founder of Zebra Intelligence, which helps companies conduct custom research and gather insights on, on people born in the past two decades. What she basically said is millennials hate doorbells because they're like a sudden intrusion. You hear this sudden ring, and you don't want to go to the door. You assume that the person coming to the door is maybe sinister. Because these days, if somebody comes to the door, you text them, say, I'm here. That's how you know that somebody's come to the door. I'm, I'm, I'm here. And what she's saying is that people don't like to be interrupted at their house. Now, you, you think, okay, so... Um, how many people really think about this? Well, Sebastian Maniscalco is a hilarious comedian. I don't know if any of you have ever, ever heard of him. But he does a, a, a sketch where he contrasts ringing a doorbell today versus 20 years ago. You can Google it. It is, it is really funny. And it really hits at the fact that we, in the year 2017, we don't like inviting people into our homes like we did 20, 30 years ago. And if we're going to be uh, people who are hospitable, we have to confront ourselves about areas in which we resist hospitality. And then I think we have to accept the fact this is a discipline. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. That means hospitality is a Christian spiritual discipline. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Well, if he says without grumbling, that would indicate that sometimes, oh, I don't want to show hospitality to this person. I'm kind of frustrated with him. Oh, not again. I don't like showing hospitality. I'm tired. 
I don't want to go to small group tonight. I'm hungry. Um, it's a discipline. First uh, Timothy 3.2, church leader needs to be hospitable. First Titus 1.8, be hospitable, loving what is good, being sensible, being just, devout, and self-controlled. He puts hospitality kind of in the same context as self-control. If you're going to be hospitable, what you got to realize is that the triune God is hospitable, and we have to confront ourselves about where we're not hospitable, and we have to accept this as a spiritual discipline. But think about what Eli birthed through his hospitality. Hannah is going to give birth to a son. Uh, Hannah will pen a song that will become scripture. Samuel will lead the nation as a prophet. A thousand years plus later, Mary, the mother of Jesus, will be inspired to write her song because of Hannah's song and the Lord Jesus Christ. The king of Israel comes upon the scene, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it started by a grumpy priest showing hospitality to a woman in pain. I mean, God is just waiting to use your hospitality to shift things around. So, three takeaways. Takeaway number one, remember your identity in Christ. You are a believer priest. Priests do two things. They represent God to the world, and they represent the world to God. You are a representative of the triune God. What does that mean practically? Well, be hospitable when you're out in public. What does that mean? Smile at the cashier at Walmart. Smile. Ask them about their day. Find some way to encourage them. I have heard little snippets of heartache and pain when I've done this. And you can be an instrument of God's hospitality in the moment. Be respectful to the people who wait on you at restaurants. Look them in the eye. Express appreciation. In other words, be conscious that you are a conduit of hospitality out in public. Be honoring to others who seem rushed, who seem to be pushing their agenda forward. Is it easy to get irritated at those people? Yes. Are you ever those people who are rushed? Yes. Be hospitable to people who are being rushed. When you walk past people, lead out with a smile. Nod to them. Nod to people who make eye contact with you. Engage people at the gas pump. There's a book called Nice Bike. And the point of this book is that when you compliment somebody on their motorcycle, you are complimenting them on their pride and joy, and it will open up a conversation. When you're at the gas pump, you can say to somebody, nice bike, nice Harley, nice car, nice antique Mustang from the 1960s. My dad used to drive one of those things. Engage people. The Washington Post did a, a wonderful article about a man who did this just before Hurricane Irma hit. Uh, is a, a, a woman who, um, <coughs> whose husband was um, in the Korean War who had a pacemaker. Her name was Pam Brecky. She knew her dad was going to be in big trouble if the electricity went out, so she raced to the one Lowe's that still had generators left. She got in line, and the last generator was sold just before she got up to the cashier. She burst into tears. 
And there was a wonderfully hospitable man who just got in his generator and he said, I'm going to give it to you. There's, there's kingdom hospitality right there. I don't know if he's a believer or not. I'm just saying, smile. Give a kind word. Give a simple expression of gratitude. Give a generous tip to the server. That's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two is find opportunities for structured hospitality in three areas, neighborhood, work, and city. Here's a really interesting trend. Uh, there is a magazine called Kinfolk. I don't know how many of you have read Kinfolk or seen Kinfolk, but Kinfolk is more than just a magazine. It's, a, it's now a movement. And there are Kinfolk gatherings all over the world right now, London, New York, San Antonio, all, all, all over the place. And the idea is, look, we're, we're none of us are with our families anymore. All of us are spread out. So why can't we have gatherings and get people together? And so Kinfolk sponsors these gatherings. Here's a, an, an example. Hashtag Kinfolk, and there's the, there's the location of, of, of this place. People are recognizing that in a fractured world, there needs to be places of hospitality. So the thing that I would say is the body of Christ ought to be that kind of place. Let's make Grace Community Church that kind of of place. I really appreciate, I love what we're doing with our international cultural exchange program that Amanda Hakola has done. I think we've got six international students with us. Love it. Love it. Thanks for being here from Vietnam. Love it. So, you know, we, we need to show a God-centered hospitality. My challenge is, is that if you have a passion for hospitality, find a creative way to do that here in our city. And here's the final one. Let's practice hospitality at Grace Community Church. I would love it if we could ramp up a culture of invitation at Grace. I'd love that. Let's create a culture of invitation. invitation. That's how the early church did so well in those early years. They created a culture of invitation. People from all over the world were in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. They were separated from their families. They wanted to continue and figure out who this Holy Spirit was. And so they created a culture of, in, of, in, of invitation. Let's invite people to Grace Community Church. Um, it'd be great if we had that culture of invitation here. So we're going to transition to communion. And as we do that, I would, I, I would like to ask you to ponder, um, how do I experience God as being hospitable today right now as I'm taking communion. I'd like for you just to kind of envision the fact that God wants to meet with you and be hospitable with you right here as we take communion. We're going to turn the lights low, and uh, let, me, let me read what Paul says. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in memory of me. Fathers, we come to the communion table. Lord, we come to a place of hospitality. You invited us to come here. Your kingdom presence is here. Lord, as we take the bread and, and take, the, take the juice, I pray, Lord, that we would sense your goodness kindness and your mercy toward us. 
Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can come as you feel led to the communion table. If God has answered a prayer for you and you want to celebrate by lighting a candle, you're more than welcome to do that as well. Let's, let's worship by taking communion.